Hey, my name is Pastor Milo. I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, it's a beautiful day. It's a, uh, the weather's improving. I don't know if you noticed it. I see someone's clapping their hands like, yeah, it's coming. Uh, there's just like an energy and an excitement that comes with a weather change uh, like this. Uh, this time of year, if you look around this weekend, maybe you've already been. Uh, you can go to an RV show uh, so that you can get ready for the summer. Uh, there's also some uh, wedding expos that are available uh, for you this weekend here in the uh, city of Buffalo to be able to make your way out and start making your plans uh, for the summer. Uh, my wife and I did not get married in the spring or in the summer. We got married uh, over Christmas break in 2001. And so uh, if you lived in this area, you can remember back to 2001, uh, it was a pretty rough uh, winter. And so uh, our wedding uh, it was December the 29th. Uh, we got somewhere between seven and eight feet of snow uh, that weekend. Uh, our wedding was delayed for about two and a half hours because the 90 was closed, the 400 was closed, and just trying to let people come to our wedding. And uh, so it was not at all what we had planned for, not at all what we uh, had anticipated. Uh, we should have expected it here in Buffalo uh, that time of year. Uh, but in all of it, at the end of the, the wedding, uh, this mystical idea that, that my wife had had about how we would uh, leave and instead of them throwing uh, seeds at us or blowing bubbles at us or anything like that, that we would have sparklers. And so there would be like this mystical sparkly thing, fireworks kind of going and we would run through it. Well, it was so cold and it was so late at that point uh, that when we, no one wanted to go outside. They didn't want to go outside and light the things. And so my dad, being a very resourceful person that he is, he had thought of this ahead of time when he heard our silly idea. And so uh, he stood at the door of the church with a butane torch that he had brought. Uh, because you normally would bring that to a wedding. And uh, so he stood there at the door with a butane torch so people could light their sparkler as they went out the door. And what would happen then was the people who got farther out their sparklers would burn out and die. And so they were standing out there. And my dad at the door was covered in a green smoky cloud there at the door. And finally, we just decided this is the dumbest thing we've ever thought of. And we just ran out into the green cloud, out into the darkness. And that was our wedding day. Uh, something about planning for a wedding, like... Uh, if, if parents, if you're going through this with your kids right now, there's a whole lot of planning that goes on. Or students, uh, if you're, you know, in love with someone in college right now and you're about to get married, this is what Erin and I, uh, she finished college early that December. And so we decided the very best thing to do would be to get married less than two weeks later because uh, we loved each other so much. Uh, but there, there's a lot of planning that goes into that day. And what ends up happening, uh, and, and we encourage people that, that we go through this process with is you have to plan for more than the wedding day. Because as goofy as our wedding ended up being, the rest of your marriage is going to be just as dumb as that is. And you've got to figure this thing out. And so one of the counseling books that anytime that I do marriage counseling, my wife and I do that together. And the counseling book that we use is called Preparing for Marriage. And day one, first thing, the first session that we have with people, we, we like to say, I'm not here to help you plan your wedding. Like, there's, there's plenty of other people that can do that. It's my desire and my hope and our desire, if we're sitting down and meeting with you, to help you prepare for marriage. You have to actually spend more time with this person than your wedding day. 
And so much time and so much planning and so much money and finances and all this effort will be put behind that two or three or six or ten hours, whatever that looks like for that wedding day. And very little will be put into the preparation for the rest of their lives together. So over the last 10 to 15 years, I've performed like 10 or 12 weddings. Not like a super large amount. Uh, it's about one wedding every summer, but a couple of summers there was like four and then a couple of years gap and different things like that. So I've performed like 10 or 12 weddings. And even in my own personal experience of those 10 or 12 weddings, two of them have already in the last 10 years ended up in divorce. Even though we had those conversations to say, let's, let's make sure that we're planning for marriage. Let's make sure that we're planning for the long haul. Uh, let, let, let's keep our mind on the prize, uh, but, but still, it doesn't seem like uh, the numbers are working in our favor. And, and I would say this is not just me in relation to uh, weddings that I've performed. You in this room know that 50% of our marriages, whether they're in the church or outside of the church, are ending in divorce. So that without really stretching those numbers that much, it means half of you in this room, if you've not been divorced yourself, you are in a family that has been split, whether it's your parents or a brother or a sister, you are dealing with this specifically. And today I'm not talking about marriage specifically and, or, or anything like that, but it's, it is such a, a relationship that is put on display for all to see publicly when you invite everybody in to see uh, two families join together at that uh, marriage ceremony. You, you see that connection that happens there. And in the same way, a very public break will also happen when that marriage falls apart. That those two families are ripped apart or the children that are in that marriage are ripped apart or the friends that knew that couple, you're kind of pulled apart. And so that's, that's just a blanket, uh, very specific example of what happens in our relationships as a whole. You see, there are relationships that break apart every day. Some of them are within our extended family. Some of them are within our really close friendships that have had uh, been in place for a number of years, and those friendships break. And those friendships don't always break in a legal document that, that demonstrates the kids being separated from each other. Those, those friendships aren't always demonstrated by some Facebook post that says that uh, I'm now uh, separated from uh, the person that I love. But it's still very very real. And it's part of the human experience that we have here on earth is that these relationships around us are broken and damaged and they're not what we thought that they are going to be. And so shouldn't we expect that if 50% of our marriages are broken, if 100% of our relationships can end up damaged, wouldn't you expect that the Bible, God's guidebook for getting through what we experience here on earth would have something to say about how we interact with one another. I certainly believe that it does, and don't you think that we should dig in there to find out what he might have to say about it. Will you open your Bibles this morning? Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you're using that black Bible that's in the pew in front of you, it's a New International Version. And if you have trouble finding it, I'll get you there quicker on page 1230. A New International Version here in Philippians chapter 2. The title of today's sermon is this, Imperfect People in Perfect Unity. Imperfect People in Perfect Unity. If I start right there at chapter 2 beginning in verse 1, you're going to see the main text that we're going to be looking at uh, today. Here we go. Chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. 
Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Now, that's our primary text for today. We're going to go a little bit further than that, but that's the main uh, meat of where we're going to be today. I want you to be able to see that and, and, and be able to just kind of dial in right there. The very first word we see in chapter 2, verse 1, is therefore. Anytime you see that in English, we need to uh, use that uh, just uh, memory trick that says if you see the word therefore, we want to know what it's therefore. And so the reason why it's there, the reason why it begins that is it's actually the summary of where we've been already in this series. Uh, If you're just visiting with us today, if it's your first week here, you need to know we're working through the book of Philippians uh, in this series, Mission Together. This is the third week that we've been in this series. And so we started in chapter 1, and you see this letter that is being written from the Apostle Paul to some people that he genuinely loves. He loves this church at Philippi. He has uh, started this church and then has had to leave it because uh, he's now in prison in Rome and he's running from a jail cell to people he loves. And it's pretty clear that these people love him as well. They have great affection for him. And while he is there in prison, he is there for the sake of the gospel, of being sure that the gospel continues to ripple out. And he's under tremendous suffering. We talked about this last week, that the the pain and the trial that he is going through. And yet, he continues to write these letters to encourage the church. Do not give up. Do not stop. And he has this real fateful statement that he gave us in chapter 1. For me to live is Christ, uh, but to die is gain. He said it would be more beneficial for me to die here so that I don't have to continue to go through the suffering that I'm going through. However, if Christ is exemplified and if Christ is glorified, let me continue to live. And he's saying, people of Philippi, for your sake, if I can continue to write to you and continue to encourage you so that you follow through in the midst of your suffering, I will do so. Turn back maybe a page in your Bible to to chapter 1, verse 27. We covered this last week. But if we want to know what the word therefore is therefore, let's look at chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Apostle Paul is in his jail cell. The Apostle Paul is going through tremendous trials, tremendous suffering, and he's not sure what is going to happen to him. But he says, no matter what you hear from me, above all, some of your translations say exponentially more important than anything else that I have to say. Make sure that you get this. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Some of your translations may even have the line, conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven. Then whether I come to you and see you, or for you, or for I only hear about you while in my absence, I will know that you will stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. The Apostle Paul is telling the Philippians to stand strong for the Lord against external circumstances that are coming at him. There, there are conflicts that are coming after them. They are being imprisoned. They are being beaten. They are being abused because they are calling Christ their Savior and Lord. In the Roman government, we talked about this last week, how, how any time anyone was put on a pedestal above the Emperor Caesar, that this was, this was a death sentence. And ultimately, what, what Paul was calling to them to, to follow Christ, was to say that there is one mightier than Caesar, and therefore, 
we are accepting that we will be beaten, we will be abused, even crucified. He's telling the Philippians to stand strong for the Lord against external conflicts. And he says, stand firm. So stand shoulder to shoulder. Lean into what's about to come. You're going to need one another. Strive together. Fight together for the sake of the faith of the gospel. And then it's as if he notices this subtle clue. As if there's something under the surface. You see, when he writes letters to the, the church in Corinth, it's not under the surface. It's not subtle at all. The church in Corinth was a total hot mess. The place was ridiculous. There are people suing one another. There are people actively in the, in the practice of idol worship. There are, there are these fights going on during the communion service at the church. And, and this is all happening. When he writes the letter to the Corinthians, he says, you're a bunch of fools. we got to get your act together. But here at Philippi, he's... He's more subtle. He's more subtle. He catches them. And it seems as though uh, the, he, he looks into the eye of Epaphroditus, who is the who one who has brought the letter from Philippi and brought it to him. And we'll learn a little bit more about him next week. But he's brought this letter to the Apostle Paul. And it seems as though he looks into his eyes and realizes there's something going on, that, that not everything is perfect on the surface. We're a church that's in suburban America, and this is exactly what all suburban towns and cities do is we're really, really good at making sure everything looks good on the surface. Making sure that everything looks comfortable and sweet and nice and we don't deal with some of the underlying issues. For instance, we talked last week, I brought up last week that even here in western New York that the opioid problem, the drug problem that exists in Erie County is, is worse in the suburbs than it is in the city limits. And yet we kind of pretend like everything is perfectly fine. So don't you think this applies to us today when Paul looks into Philippi and says, yeah, it looks like you've got everything on the surface under control, but I know that there's something going on here. And so he opens this up. This this is the therefore of why he's going to give what he's going to give us in chapter 2. Something that is very, very deep theologically and yet is so practical we might miss it because we get caught up into some of the real deep truths that he's giving us. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if there's any common sharing in the spirit, if there's any tenderness and compassion, he's using this if-then clause. You'll see it's about to come at us in just a minute, but he, he opens up four or five questions here. He says, if there is any, this is the basis of where Paul is coming from. He's, he's going to call his people, he's going to call you and I to unity, humility, and love among the believers. The ideal is that the, that the Philippian Christians, uh, is that they are going to receive what he is mentioning here. They have a responsibility to do something then with what he's about to say. So he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, he's asking a rhetorical question. Is, as if, uh, isn't it obvious that there is encouragement from Christ? Of course there was great encouragement in Christ. And of course, you and I, as we read this uh, 2,000 years later, we read this and said, of course there's encouragement in Christ. Spurgeon says that the Holy Spirit consoles, but Christ is the consolation. He, he, he puts it this way. He says, the Holy Spirit is the physician, but Christ is the medicine. 
You have encouragement from Christ. When you know Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ is in your life, you are encouraged. He says, if there is any encouragement, well, of course there is, Paul. If there is any comfort of love. Yes, another rhetorical question here. Affirming the great comfort that we have in the love of Christ. Every Christian ought to know what it's like to have Jesus give him the comfort of his love. And, and even, there's, there's another layer here that it's not the, the motherly comfort that you, you crawl into your mom's arms and she puts her arms around and says everything's going to be alright. It's, it's actually even more than that. It's a, it's a fatherly comfort. The, 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 the word picture that is given, given here, the behind this word in the New Testament is more than just a soothing sympathy. It's the idea of, of a strengthening and a helping and of making strong that type of comfort. The word that's, that's kind of behind this would be the word brave. You can be brave, be comforted, be brave, be strengthened. The, the love of God in our life makes us strong, makes us brave. And of course, Paul, of course there is comfort in a love like that. If there is any sharing or if there is any fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship is the ancient Greek word, and you may have heard this before, koinonia. Some new churches that are being planted that call themselves uh, the Koinonia Church. It's a Greek word and it means the sharing of things in common. We share life with the Spirit of God with one another like we've never known before. The fellowship that comes when believers connect with one another. He says, if there's any sharing in the fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any, he goes on to say, any tenderness and compassion... Paul's final rhetorical question here assumes that every Christian knows something about the affection of God and the mercy of God. The Apostle Paul opens this chapter with the word therefore and then he begins these statements and he is, he is building the case in, in a most obvious of manner the way that he approaches these things. And to make his rhetorical point, he could have just said something like this. If fire is hot, if stones are hard, if water is wet, then... And he continues on. So it goes like this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then... He's going to give us some action steps. Then make my joy complete... By being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and of one mind. He says, make my joy complete. Don't forget where the Apostle Paul is as he's writing this letter. He said, make all of my days full of sunshine. Make me feel better. Make this, this situation seem better because he is in the middle of trial and persecution in a jail cell. In a system where, no, he doesn't get three meals, three hots and a cot. No, he is actually uh, relying on people from the outside to bring him any resources, any food, any supplies, or he is going to die there in jail. And he says, you can make my joy complete, complete joyfulness. If you do these things, he is asking out of a personal request. Part of why the Philippians need to, to listen to what he is going to say is because they should know that it would make their leader, it would make this Apostle Paul, the one who had shown them Christ in the first place, it would make his heart happy. He is well aware of their shortcomings. He knows these people specifically, yet he longs for them 
to be whole. He is well aware of the external forces up against them. He is in prison because of the same external forces. And yet he longs for them to stand as one in unity against the external forces. He wants them to fight together for one another in unity. And he is now aware of some of the internal struggles that are going on within their midst. And he longs for them to have that same fight, that same desire, that same want for unity within the body. And so this morning, if you've got that white sheet of paper in your bulletins, just to track along with where we're going this morning, we want to make this statement to continue to follow through with this thought. When imperfect people find perfect unity, when imperfect people find perfect unity, they will share one focus. When imperfect people find perfect unity, they will share one focus. We read this word here, like-minded, being like-minded, which means to think the same thing, have the same thoughts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says to them, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would agree with one another, that what you say, and that there would be no divisions among you, but that you would be what? Perfectly united in mind and in thought. This is his desire not only for the church at Philippi, not only for the church at Corinth, but for any church who would call themselves followers of Christ. So that you would be united with one mind. Now we're about to finish what we hope to be the end of the driving season where we have to drive in snow and bad weather here. We may still have a few more days. We're not fools. We know what might still happen. But when you're going down the highway and you've got a lot of snow on the road or, or maybe after a heavy snow and you've got slush that's in the road and you kind of get these two ruts that are going down in the lanes ahead of you. As you're going down through there, you, you, you always remember, uh, those of you who've been driving for a while, you remember what it's like if you get off to the side a little bit, you know what it's like for that wheel to catch some of the heavy slush and the way that it'll jerk the wheel out of your hands. And so what most of us will do when the weather is like that, we'll kind of grab a hold of the wheel and you'll just stare out the window. You don't want to talk to anybody. You don't want to interact with anybody. Because it's the times that you interact or talk to somebody or laugh at a joke. The next thing you know, your car's weaving back and forth across the road. And I have been in that situation where your car starts spinning in circles and you realize this is not good, this is not good, this is not good. In that particular situation, it was late at night. The car spins around, spins in circles. I wheel back and forth because I think that I know how to save because I think I'm a NASCAR driver of some sort. So I've saved the car. I'm on the road. I feel good only to realize the car has done multiple spins and now I'm going perfectly in reverse down the road. It only took a few seconds to realize I'm not very good at going reverse down the road on a snowy night before going off the embankment into a small ravine. Everyone was fine. Snow, when it's really thick, just catches you softly and realizes how dumb and stupid you really are. That's what happens when you lose your focus. Any of us who live in this climate, we know and understand if someone is listening to the podcast today and they have never driven those type of conditions, you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about, how easily it is to get distracted and pulled away from the main thing, the one thing you're supposed to be doing is driving that car through the snowstorm. You must remain focused. 
And what we read here is that being like-minded when it comes to the local church and when it comes to fighting for being together and being unified together is that each and every person in that congregation, that gathering of people who are all pursuing the same focus. And they will not be distracted one way or the other. They're gripping the wheel, looking out into the darkness and saying, I know where the target is and that's where we're going, united in mind and in thought. They will share one focus. The focus is this, to think like Christ. To think like Christ. When imperfect people find perfect unity, they will share one focus. They will think like Christ. Secondly, they will demonstrate one love. They will demonstrate one love. The Apostle Paul says it here, having the same love. This is the natural consequence. If we are first having the same mind, if we are one-minded pursuing the same thing, then we will do this. We will have the same love. We will love the same things. We will care about the same things. Care about the same people pertaining to Christ and his church. We will go the same places. We will care about going to the same places. We're caring for one another with the same kind of love. The Apostle Peter says our love for one another should be of the same kind, sincere, fervent, and from a pure heart. This is what it looks like for us to have one love, one unified love. Our love for one another will be mutual, not one-sided. See, that's often the case. That's our natural inclination uh, is to be one-sided and to, to be selfish about our love and make sure that it benefits myself when I'm in a relationship with someone else. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is calling for here. He says, you will demonstrate one love. You see, when imperfect people find perfect unity, they will demonstrate one love. They will learn to care like Christ. And they will grow one heart. They will grow one heart. The Apostle Paul here calls it being of one accord. Literally, you could translate that as being of one soul or, or having your souls joined together. It suggests as acting together as one soul driving them forward, one, uh, one, one meaning that drives them forward. Therefore, working together in complete harmony, not as separate entities going in separate ways, but all having the same soul, the same heart, the same desire. Many of you have gone multiple times. Our church has responded in natural disasters. Uh, most recently, some, some of you went years ago uh, when the hurricane happened in um, New Orleans. What's the name of that hurricane, Dan? I'm losing it. Katrina, thank you. It's a pretty big one. <laughs> Many of you respond multiple times to Katrina. A number of years ago, we responded to Baton Rouge uh, when there was all the flooding that was there in Baton Rouge. Then there's a number of you who went to Houston and responded in Houston. Uh, and I've been down in New York City for Hurricane Sandy. Like, uh, like there's in many ways, there's a... There's a a fire and rescue squad here at the church that's ready to go out and be able to respond to these natural disasters all over the country. But what I have found each time that I've responded and been part of those teams, and many of you that have been part of that, is that there is something of a one heart of people coming from all over the country who just have a simple desire that says, I don't know how I'm going to help, I don't know what exactly I'm going to do, but I'm here. Put me to work. My desire is to serve. My desire is to serve those who don't know Christ. My desire is to serve those who are suffering. My desire is to do something rather than standing back and just watching. 
That's why I'm here. And that's why he's here. And that's why she's here. And that's why this whole team is here. And yes, we've driven through the night multiple nights to be here. And yes, it's inconvenient for us to be here. And yes, it's cost us a lot to be here. But we're here with the same heart. And here we are. How can we serve you? This is representative of the body of Christ. Being unified with one heart. When imperfect people find perfect unity, they will grow one heart or they will learn to serve like Christ. Lastly, they will pursue one passion. They will pursue one passion. Some of your translations will say intent on one purpose. Not only working together outwardly, but inwardly having the same purpose and intentions as the person next to them. So we have one focus, one love, one heart, one passion. Ultimately, to be like Christ. To think like Christ, care like Christ, serve like Christ, to be like Christ. That that would be the passion of his people, of his church, his unified, perfectly unified church. As I'm prepping this message this week, thinking through what's, what's here and thinking through what to give this morning as a humble offering to say, what is God's text sharing with us here? And what, how can we apply this? And it keeps coming back to the same answer. It's Jesus. And anytime you come back to any different answer than that, one focus, one love, one heart, one passion, it is Jesus Christ. And if we get distracted on anything else, we're getting distracted with ancillary things because Jesus Christ is to be the focus of the local church. And friends, if if we are unified in anything, it is not because we are people who, who, who like to gather together on Sundays and like the same type of music or want to help in the same type of ways or want to send missionaries to the same type of areas or do the same type of church planning efforts. Those are not the things that bind us together. It's Christ. We are unified in Christ. It can't be this simple, right? As we continue on, you'll see that these principles are true in any relationship. But at the end of the day, they should be exemplified in Christ-like relationships. Look at this, verse 3. Do nothing out of self-ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, if you didn't hear anything I had to say up to this point, we're going to get here just a few quick hits like basics of really good relationships. What not to do with others. Don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. We want our, our lives to be comfortable. We want to have things that make us feel good. But selfishness is part of a fallen human nature. It is the root of every other sin. These two things that the Apostle Paul gives us, they says don't do these things. These are the same two things that the devil was thrown out of heaven, that Lucifer is thrown out of heaven because of these same two things. Selfishness, and then secondly, don't be prideful. He uses this to, to describe a person who has exaggerated ideas of their own importance. People will get puffed up with pride. The book of Romans tells us that we are puffed up with pride as humans. Don't be selfish. Don't be prideful. These are the things that you don't do. Then he gives us two things that we do do. All you middle schoolers get that one. These are the things we do do. 
Do be humble. Humility is having no thought of yourself. The secret to having joy in spite of people and the people around you is humility. And yet in the Greek culture where he is writing this to, humility was frowned upon. It was not to be desired. And yet Jesus led from a position of humility. Humility is what really allows relationships to work. Don't be selfish. Don't be prideful. Do be humble. Do be respectful. Finishing first is not the most important thing. Sometimes sometimes it's helping someone else to finish at all. Do be respectful. Treating others better than ourselves is against our human nature. This whole list here is. Verses 3 and 4 here are just giving the basics of human interaction that, that we would all desire for, we would all want. But at the same time, we all will fail at every single time. If you miss the first part, I served in the Marine Corps. The last, uh, the, the last week of, of, the, of the Marine boot camp is something called the crucible. It's a, uh, 56 hours or something like that of just going out and beating the tar out of the recruits and seeing if they can make it. And you get to the end of that thing. And basically everything that I've listed here could be true about a platoon coming out of boot camp in any of our military services. These young men and women would have one focus, they would have one love, they would have one heart, they would have one passion, because that's part of what the the coalescing together of a group of people is, that's what the military does, is it it puts you through tremendous amount of strain, tremendous amount of trial, and you come through and you're starting to to help your fellow man, make sure that he's able to get through the obstacles or, or the things that are in front of him, and you come through all of that, and you look at things, you say, yeah, I have one focus, I have one love, I care for the person next to me, we have the same heart, we have the same passion, they tell you the same thing. They would say, don't be selfish, don't be prideful, be humble, be respectful. And so now you've joined the club. Military and the Marines, we call it the few, the proud, the Marines. You are now part of our ranks. But the Apostle Paul takes it a whole lot further than that. Next verse. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Thinking like Christ, caring like Christ, serving like Christ, to be like Christ. Paul is setting the bar tremendously high at this point. There is no boot camp that gets you to this level of understanding of what it is like to be like Christ. And then in your Bibles you'll see it's it's offset. The next few verses there, it's shaped differently in most of our Bibles. And what this is, is an early hymn, most, most uh, commentators believe, that, 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 that many of the early church uh, would, would sing. They would share this as, as poetry, share as music together. They would sing this together, this strong theological statement. And if you've got a pencil or a pen, I want you to be able to see this, to be able to see what is happening here. There's this incredible arch that is being drawn out here. So take and write the number one next to the word who, being in the very nature. Write the number one next to it, please. In the very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, write the number two next to that. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Write the number three next to this. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. Now make a star next to he humbled. So a star, big star. This is the main point. 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And then the author backs it off. So write in number three again. Next to therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Then write the number two, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And then write number one, and every tongue acknowledge that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what you should have in your Bibles right now would be one, two, three, star, three, two, one. The shape of what is being put here that the Apostle Paul is sharing, and he, he may not even be the original author of this hymn. But as he is putting it out there, he is building for us the framework by which all things revolve. The star is next to the word. He humbled himself by being obedient to death on the cross. Now look at the comparisons. Very quickly look at the comparison. We have the number one. Who being the nature of God did not consider himself equality with God something to be used as own advantage. And yet, look at the number one again. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Go back to number two. He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Go down to number two again. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You don't bow to a servant, friends. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Go to number three. He was made in human likeness and found in the appearance of a man. Jump down to number three. We wrote again. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. It's not a common name. Not the name that you would find uh, among normal men. He's got the name above every name, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And the apex of the argument is this. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. You see, this is what we are unified about. Therefore, he continues his argument. He builds the, the full statement. Therefore, my dear friends... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but not much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you and will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You see, I hope that this morning, in reading Paul's words, that the bar has been set so tremendously high, you look at that bar and say, there is no possible way that I could get over that. When I was in high school, I was a pole vaulter, and I thought I was pretty hot stuff. And I came and just recently, this last year, I came and watched the state, uh, the, the track tournament for the states. And I watched the guys jump over, and I thought, eh, that's not that high. I was probably doing about that. And I go over and look at the numbers. on They were already in two feet more than I ever did 20 years ago. But the bar is set so much higher than anyone on earth would ever be able to reach. Which is why it's important here for us to see in verse 13, for it is God who works in you. And he will act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You know what his good purpose is? His one good perfect purpose? That he could take imperfect people and help them to live in perfect unity behind his son, Jesus Christ. That would be his purpose. His focus. So this morning as we look at this passage... We've talked about what the Apostle Paul is calling the church to, to be unified perfectly. The church 2,000 years ago initially, but now as we look at this text year after year, age after age, decade after decade, century after century, it is still true for us today. But it's only true if you look at this text 
and ask yourself the question, do I share one focus, his focus? Do I demonstrate his love for others? Do I demonstrate his heart? Do I pursue his passions? Because if we don't ask ourselves that question, friends, then we are not united. We're pursuing different things. We have different focuses. We have different passions, hearts, desires. But when we can look at this text and say, God, will you grow something in me? Will you build something in me? It is this simple. It's not simplistic, but it is simple. Christ is the center of all that we do and all that we are and all that we can be. And as he says here, be sure to work it out. It's time to figure it out. So this morning as our ushers come forward, we have a time of response each week as part of our, as, as part of our gathering together. You have those cards that are in the, the pew in front of you, cards for you to be able to write prayer requests on, cards for you to be able to write a change of address on. But this morning, maybe some of you need to write something on that card in response to saying, Christ is going to be my one focus, my one passion, my one desire. You see, a sign of spiritual maturity in Christ is a people who are unified. Damaged, broken, imperfect people who are unified in Christ. That's a sign of spiritual maturity. People from all demographics, people from all different backgrounds, people from all different age groups. When they are unified in one thing, that makes no sense. In any other community, in any other team, in any other place, you will not see that. But you will see that in the local church. Why? Because that's what Christ has set it up to be. And it exemplifies him higher than anything else when that is true. A sign of spiritual maturity is when we are a people who are reproducing believers who understand how to put Christ as our one focus, our one love, our one passion. A sign that God is at work in the life of the church as a people who will humble themselves before him. Understanding that at a place of humility, relationships will grow. Christ-like relationships will flourish in that environment. God has called us to be humble. Pride and selfishness have no place here. God, will you make us one. Dear Lord, we come before you this morning. We come before you as imperfect people who are, who are willing to admit that we have our own selfish desires or that we carry pride around in our hearts often, maybe even as a regular state of being. Lord, you've called us to be unified. You've called us to be willing to fight against what is an external opposition. But ultimately, Lord, you are telling us to fight for unity within the church. As we've made our way through this book, Lord, as we've continued forward and we will continue in the next coming weeks, Lord, just, Lord, let this build something in our church. Let this build a momentum towards fighting together, fighting for together, knowing that a unified church is a clear, visual 
perfect example of what you can do in the lives of the human race when we allow you to. We give ourselves to you this morning. Well, there are some here this morning that need to respond. Look at this text, knowing that it is speaking about them, that they are in direct opposition to what you have called the church to be. But as the first step of maturing spiritually, let them be willing. Are you willing to humble yourself this morning? We trust that some are. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you use your word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Allow it to pierce some this morning. And as a result, Lord, may we be unified. May you make us one. In Jesus' name we pray.